It was a world eerily similar to our own. Global, connected, up to date, and it all came tumbling down at the absolute pinnacle of its power. A vast trade network stretching from the Mediterranean in the west to the doorstep of Persia in the east. It was the world's first global economy in which luxury and practical goods were exchanged between the mighty early civilizations that characterized the dawning of human society. But then, by the mid-12th century BC, a vast majority of said civilizations were wiped out, some for good, from the face of the earth. Known as the Late Bronze Age Collapse after the era in which it occurred, it was the first societal collapse in history, and wouldn't be surpassed until a millennium and a half later with the fall of the Roman Empire. But what caused such devastation and destruction on so massive a scale? A loose confederation of raiders and seafarers may very well be the answer. Belonging to no one nation or group, they'd arrive in ships that could easily navigate and slice through the tranquil waters of the Mediterranean, raid, pillage, and plunder, then disappear as quickly as they'd come. One by one, these fearsome sailors would lay waste to each place they set their sights on, picking them clean and leaving nothing but dried-out husks in their wake. To this day, many mysteries still surround this, as Shakespeare's Duke of Clarence would have it, legion of foul fiends, but historians and archaeologists have bestowed them with the rather vague and ominous name of the Sea Peoples. Just who were these villainous brigands and vagabonds? Where did they come from, and how did they almost single-handedly usher in the Late Bronze Age collapse? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. In the three-age system that historians have applied to early human history, the Bronze Age is the second, right smack dab in the middle between the Stone Age and the Iron Age. At around 5000 BC, our ancestors gave up their semi-nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyles in favor of more permanent settlements built around agriculture. It was during this time that they also began experimenting with metallurgy, namely the manufacturing of the alloy of copper and tin that we know today as bronze. With this incredible new technology, these early farmers made tools far more durable and stronger than their stone predecessors, and weapons, which would change the face of warfare for centuries to come. The sheer number of bronze artifacts that have been unearthed from this time attest to its importance and significance. But to make bronze was expensive, as copper, largely from Cyprus, and tin from distant Afghanistan, the edge of the known world at the time, had to be imported in order to forge new items. To obtain these valuable elements, the ancient peoples of the Mediterranean knew they had to bring something to the table, so to speak. The Mycenaean Greeks offered up their olive oil for trade, the Assyrians their cedarwood timber, the Egyptians their vast quantities of gold, and so on. Thus the world's first global trade network was born, and it wasn't long before these respective economies were booming. Indeed, trade formed the backbone of these early societies, allowing cities like Ugarit in northern Syria and Hattusha in what's now Turkey to grow rich and flourish. Ugarit in particular was strategically located along the Levantine coast, right at the junction where the ancient Silk Road, leading all the way from China, met the seafaring trade routes that crisscrossed the Mediterranean. At its height, it was a city with some 30,000 inhabitants, and official records unearthed at the site revealed that at least seven languages were spoken there. It was also, incidentally, the first city struck by the nefarious Sea Peoples. They arrived without warning. So swift were their ships as well as the men within them that they could pull right up to the shore, disembark, completely lay siege to a place, then retreat with the spoils without a trace. To make matters worse, the armies of Ugarit were away on military campaigns at the time, leaving the city defenseless and open to attack. Millennia later, as archaeologists excavated the site, two clay tablets were found that contained letters to the Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses III, as well as the king of nearby Cyprus. They were, in essence, calls for help, 
and it's clear based upon their contents that the situation was dire. In the tablet intended for Ramesses, the king of Ugadi pleadingly requests for the aid of some 150 warships, fully stocked with armed soldiers and other weapons in which to help fend off the invading hordes. The letter meant for Cyprus was, more or less, the same, begging for military reinforcements. But these letters were never sent. Instead, they were left to bake and harden in the ensuing fire that followed the Sea People's raid of the city. When the blaze subsided, all that was left was a charred ruin. Ugarit was no more. But the sacking and burning of Ugarit wasn't an isolated incident. No sooner had word spread of the coastal city's demise were attacks on other places carried out by these strangers from abroad. In Mesopotamia, these vicious pirates made their way up the Tigris River, laying siege to various towns on the fringes of the Assyrian Empire. They made landfall in Greece, destroying the fabled citadel of Mycenae. Hattusha, too, was sacked before being burnt to the ground. Through it all, the pharaoh of Egypt at the time, Ramesses III, looked on in horror, knowing full well that his lands would likely be next. What, if anything, could he do to stop the onslaught from completely toppling his kingdom? It's important to note that, while Egypt was particularly skilled at overland combat, namely through its use of horse-drawn chariots and tight military formations that were relentless in their attacks, they weren't known for their naval might or power. For waterborne conflicts, they left that primarily to their more adept neighbors, namely Greece, the Minoans on Crete, and the Phoenicians in the Levant and various island strongholds throughout the Mediterranean. On that front, pun definitely intended here, the Egyptians were severely lacking, and it wasn't long before the Sea Peoples began turning their gaze hungrily towards the gold-rich lands along the Nile, for they had a plan. If one were to look at a map of Egypt today, which more or less retains its ancient borders, they'd notice that most of its biggest and important cities stand along the banks of the Nile. This, of course, is no accident. Since antiquity, with much of the land being made up of dry, arid desert, the mighty river has been the country's saving grace, whose rich and fertile bends proved vital to the growth as well as the development of its settlements. But the Nile is quite wide, and therefore can easily accommodate larger ships, ships like those of the Sea Peoples. Their goal was to enter the Nile Delta and course down the river, attacking each city and picking them off one by one. From there, it would only be a matter of time before Egypt, too, would submit and fall. But the Nile Delta was difficult to traverse. While Egypt's coastline lay largely undefended, and therefore would be easily prone to invasion, the entryway into the country's fertile lands would prove to be a costly gamble for the Sea Peoples. For the most part, the Nile is a singular river that bisects Egypt almost down the middle. But for the last 93 miles, 150 kilometers of its northward journey, it fans out into a vast marshy delta lined with red lotus plants, date palms, and papyrus reeds. The Egyptians themselves were known to get lost in it from time to time, as its lush, verdant environment betrayed any hint of the perils that could be lurking behind every turn. In those days, the waters were still full of crocodiles and hippos, both of which could be quite dangerous if provoked. Still, despite these conditions, the Sea Peoples were willing to take the risk, especially given the vast stockpiles of gold the Egyptians were said to keep within their temples, tombs, and of course the royal treasury. As word of the approaching enemy soon reached the royal palace at Thebes, Ramesses assessed the situation, spending many a day and sleepless night pondering as to how he might go about defending his people from this imminent threat. He knew a coastal defense would prove in vain, for, as previously stated, the Egyptian navy was by no means the best or strongest of the ancient world, especially when compared to the Sea People's flotilla of death. The only option, it seemed, would be to use the Nile Delta to his advantage. Leading his troops into the marshy landscape, they would await the enemy, where they'd launch a surprise attack on the Sea People's forces. It was a risky plan at best, but the safety of his lands and people were at stake. With the gods' help, they'd emerge victorious. If not, then Egypt was doomed to go the way of Ugarit, Mycenae, and Hattusha. Only time would tell. Near the foot of the Theban hills on the western bank of the Nile opposite the modern city of Luxor stand the ruins of an ancient temple. 
It's the mortuary temple dedicated to Ramesses III at a place now known as Medinet Habu. When one visits the site, they're greeted by a series of detailed and impressive relief carvings along its walls that dictate the outcome of that selfsame battle, known as the Battle of Jahi, between the Egyptians and the Sea Peoples that took place sometime between 1178 and 1175 BC. The artwork tells how Egyptian forces, led by the pharaoh himself, congregated in the Nile Delta, well hidden amongst the reeds, lotus plants, and palms, waiting for their chance to strike upon the approaching enemy. The atmosphere that day was probably deathly quiet, and so tense that they could hear the sea people's oars slicing through the river's waters, perhaps even the muffled conversations of those on the decks. While the exact number of Egyptian troops present is unknown, the relief carvings indicate hundreds of archers and spearmen who likely stood poised at the ready to strike. Finally, when the enemy was within reach, Ramesses gave the command, and the archers shot a volley of arrows into the Sea People's open ships, striking and killing several. In the ensuing chaos and confusion, the enemy scrambled together to retaliate, but it was too late. Once the pharaoh gave the signal, Egyptian ships appeared from within the thicket of palms. Each was equipped with hundreds of spearmen, who pulled up alongside the Sea People's fleet and boarded the enemy ships. Soon the waters of this particular stretch of the delta ran red with blood, and littered with the corpses of many a fallen soldier, and the enemy were forced to retreat. Miraculously, the Egyptians emerged victorious, the first of any of the ancient societies in the Mediterranean to successfully quell an invasion by the Sea Peoples. Surprisingly, however, they wouldn't be the only ones. The Assyrians, too, managed to keep the bloodthirsty pirates at bay. They did this by evacuating all towns on the fringes of their empire, and protecting their military and civilian strongholds within the capital city of Nineveh. What's perhaps not surprising is that they were the only two civilizations to emerge from the Late Bronze Age collapse relatively unscathed. Every one of their neighbors, Mycenae and Greece, the Minoans on Crete, Ugarit, and the Hittites of Hattusha, were wiped off the face of the earth. Though the likes of the Greeks would eventually rebuild, albeit several centuries later, the others would never rise again. It wasn't until centuries, even millennia later, that the charred ruins of their respective societies were unearthed, having long been abandoned. The question, however, remains. Just who exactly were these nefarious sea peoples, and where did they come from? Archaeologists and historians have posited many theories, namely that this loose confederation was made up of disparate populations from various islands, perhaps Sicily or Sardinia. Still others have placed them from the shores of North Africa, specifically the lands of Libya or Tunisia today. However, the accompanying hieroglyphs at the funerary temple at Medinet Habu might tell a different story. According to the words etched into the stone walls, peoples from nine different nations are listed, indicating that the Egyptians were somewhat familiar with their attackers. This is backed by relief carvings, which show warriors in various forms of quote-unquote foreign dress, including those with headdresses made of feathers or reeds and primitive kilts. Still others wear horned helmets and are armed with spears or primitive swords. Aside from these identifying features, however, there are no other characteristics depicted or described, leaving archaeologists to conjecture their origins. Everything from the mainland Greeks to the Canaanites of present-day Israel and even the biblical Philistines have been posited, but there simply isn't enough evidence at this time to pinpoint anything specific. When it comes to both the Sea Peoples and the Late Bronze Age collapse that they very nearly single-handedly ushered in, there are far more questions than answers. What is clear is that they instilled fear into each of the mighty civilizations of the ancient Mediterranean world, and rightfully so. Based upon the historical and archaeological evidence, they wreaked complete and total havoc on all those they set out to destroy, some societies of which would never recover or be rebuilt. Perhaps in time, more will be revealed to us. But in the meantime, we can only read the accounts or stand before those selfsame walls of Ramesses' funerary temple at Medinet Habu and let the words and images speak for themselves.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, though I think it's fair to say that the sea people's victims would probably tell you otherwise. Where do you think these ancient seafarers came from? I'd love to hear your feedback. Give me a follow on Instagram and let me know in the comments section of this post at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company. If you, like me, are in a constant pursuit of knowledge and would like to support this podcast to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Of course, listening and sharing also help me out, so please do so on all streaming platforms. Join me again next week for another informative episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Thank you.